Welcome to Energy Radio. This is episode 72, and today we head south to talk about electricity markets in the kingdom of Texas. I mean the state of Texas. But before <laughs> we do that, uh, my co-host for at least a couple more episodes, we hope, uh, Lisa Katz. Lisa, welcome back to Energy Radio. Thank you. Thank you very much, Matt. And uh, yeah, good to be on the show. Uh, this might be the second last one, actually, that I'm on before I head off on maternity leave. So yeah, let's let's make it fun. And uh, welcome, Jesson Bradshaw. So Jesson Bradshaw is the CEO of Energy Ogre. I'm really interested to hear how this name came about. But uh, maybe before we get into that, Jesson, you can give us a little bit of your, what we refer to as your origin story. Like, you know, how did you get into the space? How did you find your way to Energy Ogre? And uh, give us your background as much as you can. Well, for sure. I wish it was exciting as maybe like, you know, when these a Marvel or a DC Comics <laughs> origin story, it'll be way less interesting than that. And I will say, Matt, this is, we oftentimes refer to it as the Republic of Texas, the Great Republic, Republic. of Texas. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Since we all pretend like, you know, hey, we were our own country at one point in the past. So it's just, you know, we choose to continue to be part of the union. But uh, I was, I was anyway. getting at that. I was getting at that sentiment. So thank you for correcting my <laughs> semantics. Thank you. Yeah, good. Uh, yeah, so, you know, I was the quintessential uh, luckiest person on earth or right place at the right time, um, how I got involved in the energy space, uh, specifically electricity. You know, I, um, like, I think a lot of young people had no idea what I really wanted to do with myself when I grew up. I was under the mistaken impression that I really wanted to go to medical school and be a physician. And for better or for worse, I spent the vast majority of my undergraduate education uh, in, in the process of that pursuit. So I, I really thought and, and I was on that path uh, to become, um, you know, go to medical school down here in Houston. Um, and as I got closer to the end, uh, there were some changes that were happening in the, in the medical field here, uh, possibility of uh, socialized medicine um, coming into play. And I thought, well, wait, I may want to take a time out and uh, maybe I can find myself a, a J-O-B and just kind of like see the lay of the landscape uh, for a while. So I ended up taking a job with this company down here. Uh, it was called Natural Gas Clearinghouse. And I thought I was getting a gas accounting job or something completely boring. And uh, I was finally excited to actually make a little bit of money so I wasn't you know the perpetual car uh, starving college student and uh, so I got you know took an interview with this company and <clears throat> they said hey you know we are uh, starting this electricity side you know there's some changes that are happening you know in some of the regulatory structure and is that something you might be interested in and I was like sure whatever you know you t you're gonna pay me for sure um, so I ended up hiring in over on the power side, the, the, the electricity side, they called it electric clearing house. Um, <laughs> How creative. But, uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, so uh, we called it ECI. And so I started at this little company and I think I was employee, I don't know, seven, eight, nine, something like that. So it was kind of at the very beginning. And I walked in there and some of the guys that uh, folks that were, teaching me and training me, um, you know, we're talking about, you know, integrated electricity outputs. And I was like, integrals, man, I haven't done that in a while. Okay, integrals. <laughs> and 
they were like, so we're going to run the schedule from, you know, this time, you know, hour ending seven through 12. And I was like, what's our ending? And like, man, I, I just got into this space. I'm such a, I'm, I'm so green. I don't even know how to tell time. <laughs> yeah, that's bad. Right. So, but, uh, yeah, it was a great, it was a great experience. Um, back then, uh, when we were first starting, you know, uh, that was back post the Mega Noper that the that FERC had put out there at 888, 889 were, you know, shortly on their way. So, you know, this was us figuring out how to trade, uh, you know, uh, bilateral energies before any any of the real ISO markets. Um, PJM existed, uh, obviously, but um, a lot of the markets, we know them today. So we figured out bilateral trades and all the into energy, into TVA, you know, all the we I started trading out west actually um, Palo and uh, Mid Sea and uh, some of the other markets in the west and uh, over time the company really grew we we changed our name in 1999 to Dynagy uh, we acquired a company out of Illinois called Illinova so Illinova was the parent company of Illinois Power and in that process we had really grown you know, we were. We were always in the top two or three from a trading company perspective in terms of volumes. And uh, I eventually got to a point where I ran our South and Southeast trading desk for power. So uh, we acquired Dow's IPP arm, Desktech, and we got some power generation assets. Uh, Cogen Lindell was one of those um, that we had in Texas, and we acquired some others. And then we acquired Illinois Power. We had a pretty sizable generation portfolio uh, at that time. So we had a full requirements load obligation back to the utility. So it was kind of a neat situation. And uh, what what they realized from a company leadership perspective is um, they really need to put some folks with some commercial execution experience, you know, in there to help the administration of those assets. So so we had a had a group there that was administering and, and basically the commercial administrators and managers for all the power generation assets. And I spent I spent my time doing that. It was a lot of fun. So we built quite a bit of peaking capacity. Uh, we we, we uh, um, did a lot of contracting for combined cycle and had a lot of full, full requirements load in the portfolio back then. So it was it was a it was a lot of fun until um, until the, the powers that beat the company decided that they uh, one, we're going to make a gargantuan investment in telecom, and two, um, that we were going to acquire Enron. So <laughs> those two things kind of uh, started the the beginning of the end of uh, of of that uh, whole whole exciting trip uh, and rocket ship at the company. So that was kind of phase one of of where I started. But you know, like everything, when you have um, you have a lot of chaos and change and you know discombobulation in the industry there's usually opportunity that comes out of that right and and what we saw in you know the last thing that i was doing at dynagy was managing our fairly large portfolio we had 25,000 megawatts of owned and controlled generation capacity from california to new york i had a piece of that and, and a couple of other folks manage other parts of that but um, there were a number of new entrants and IPPs and banks that were sponsors of a lot of merchant capacity at the time that were used to using companies like Dynagy or Enron or, you know, Coastal or, you know, El Paso to manage 
um, the logistics, fuel supply, power sales around those assets. And when everyone kind of got their horns pulled back, all these guys were like, now what? And um, right. myself and uh, a, a, a partner of mine that started a previous company, we thought, well, well, we manage all of our own power plants. I mean, this is what we do for Nanaji on a day-to-day basis, and we could totally go do this on a third-party basis. Why don't we go manage third-party generation assets? Because there's this huge need for logistics. So, like, uh, you know, I don't know if it was the smartest idea in the world at the time, but we were like, hey, I'm going to leave my good-paying job in an industry that's going sideways and go start something new. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we did that, and I think uh, I, I remember having – uh, kind of uh, buyer's remorse at, you know, time plus two hours. I'm like, oh, my God, what did I just do? <laughs> uh, so, but it does, it definitely, you know, uh, my my oldest was, I think, eight or nine months old at the time, and he'd watch me walk out the door every day, and it was like, oh, I got to I gotta pull this off. I got to figure wow. out how to make this happen. So, but we cool. started that company and, uh, you know, managed third-party generation assets, and interestingly enough, got into helping uh, retail electricity providers with logistics around scheduling and how they mm. you know, did load forecasting. And uh, you know, not to bore anyone with the details, but we ended up getting more and more heavily involved in the retail business as time went on, and uh, we ended up rolling up a number of our customers and got really, really focused on growing a retail electricity brand. Um, sold that to. Uh, a Canadian um, pure play uh, retail electricity provider in 2011. And uh, some of the things that I didn't like that I saw that were happening in the industry, um, we thought, well, we can do energy ogre. We can, there's a better way to do some of this stuff for someone to step in as a fiduciary for the end users. And uh, that was kind of the genesis of what we got started here with energy ogre. So that's awesome. And, and, and because I had to, well, when I was putting, um, sort of our script and our questions together here for you, J- Jason, which of course we don't, we Jason, we don't really kind of follow, as you know, as I mentioned, um, you know, I, I kept thinking like, where did energy ogre come from? Like, is it a Shrek thing? Like you're watching Shrek one day or something like wh- where did the name come from? What's, what's the story behind that? I have to ask. Well, you know, the Ontario market's pretty similar to the Texas market, right? You know, from a, co- a competitive landscape. And so, you know, the, if you're a, if you're here and, you know, Houston or Dallas, you're just saturated, bombarded with people, you know, this power provider, lowest, best cost. I mean, just there's there's noise everywhere. And the original name of the company is Net Zero Power. Okay. And so we, we were operating as Net Zero Power for, let's just say, the first year and a half of what we were doing. But it caused a lot of confusion because the customers didn't really fully understand that we were not the retail electricity provider. We're their agents in administering this whole process for them. So there uh-huh. was a lot of confusion. So we we came up with an idea for a different uh, name of the company, one that was absolutely unique. <laughs> so <laughs> nobody had ever done it before. Um, it was uh, hopefully a little bit odd enough that it was memorable. Um, and it wasn't it wasn't a name that someone would confuse with being a retail electricity provider. So it allowed us to run a lot of branding, um, um, you know, our logos and different types of things in and around an ogre that was stand out. It was enough. It was 
different enough from what everybody was doing in the space that allowed us to kind of cut through some of the noise right. um, to at least be able to have a chance to, to get our message across. So what, what is the business model now then of, of Energy Ogre? You, you sit on the, the demands or the consumption side of the equation. Walk us through, you know, your business model, what types of clients you help, how you help them, that kind of thing. Sure. So in, it is, at its core, Energy Yoga really is a technology business. It's a technology company, but it's wrapped in this customer service candy coating for kind of lack of a better term. And all the technology is really adapted and set up around solving really is a series of math problems um, in, in folks selecting an appropriate electricity provider and selecting a rate program that was really optimized to their own consumption profile. Mm. So that's that's the problem. This is what we had is we had an abundance of options, a tremendous amount of confusion in the consuming public as to every, when everyone says they're the best or the cheapest or whatever, how, how can someone make those types of decisions? So th- that was the problem we were trying to solve for the mechanism to solve for it is to say, is there a way, you know, we can tell somebody what to do, or is it even easier for us? Does it does it make the service more valuable if we simply step in as an agent and administrate this from beginning to end? Take care of as much of this as possible by doing all the analytics and making use of the tools and all the machine learning that requires to standardize all these disparate rate structures and everything onto a singular platform. How do we make that simple um, by stepping into this role? No one had ever really fully aligned themselves on the consumer side. You know, we've had brokers in this space, but traditionally a broker in this space would be someone that's, you know, kind of by definition, they're an interested third party and their compensation is kind of dependent upon the terms and conditions, right? This one's different. It's subscription-based. Step back as a fiduciary for the consumer. Manage their house like it was your house, basically. Um, and, 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 and really start to unlock the value of the competitive markets for a lot of people that just didn't really – either they were sub-optimizing on their own, just lack of access to information or time, or – were confused or overwhelmed with the process. So that's that's the business structure at the 100,000 foot level. Now, Justin, you're focused primarily in the Texas market, I believe, which is a deregulated market. Parts can you it. talk can, can you talk to us a little bit about the differences between a deregulated and uh, you know, an, an, um, a regulated market and and sort of um, you know what? Why that should matter to your clients? Like, if I if I put ourselves even in our own shoes here in Ontario, we don't necessarily get to choose. You know, our electricity providers, right? Like, I I'm I'm sitting here in my home right now, in my home office, and I get my power from Oakville Hydro, and that's it. I don't have a choice, right? So, can you talk to us a little bit about that and why that matters? Sure. Um, you know, to me, I think uh, I'm I'm a believer in competitive forces. I think that we do probably get better outcomes and it certainly allows us to incent innovation. There's a profit opportunity. There's you you tend to see innovation run hand in glove with those two things. So I think that's particularly important with where we find ourselves and trying to figure out what we're doing from the future of energy across the board. But 
I, I can tell you uh, each one of the states and in, in many of the provinces, it's very much a balkanized process. You know, there's each each little area and each little um, uh, government oversight or franchise service territory. We, we, we lack uniformity um, across, you know, different parts of Canada as well as different parts of the United States. So what we'd see is this tends to happen at maybe a provincial level happens at a state level and then there's these sub-segments with inside you know the state and, and the provinces as well but so it's it's very much a patchwork quilt which is a little bit of a frustration but uh, the way it's happened in Texas at least was you know we had these traditional investor-owned utilities and they were vertically integrated businesses so they served customers they had tariff rates with customers they built all the transmission and distribution infrastructure, and they also built all the generation infrastructure and were operating under um, a regulatory scheme that had long-term resource adequacy types. So, you know, they were they were responsible for, um, you know, making sure that, you know, they were appropriately adding resources as might be needed for demand growth over time. Um, and, and so they, they were, had those sets of responsibilities, but they also basically were reimbursed at their cost plus a, a rate of return for all the invested capital that they were able to get in rates for their for their uh, their service territory. So beginning in well earlier than this, but as of January first, two thousand and two, the market here opened uh, in all the areas of Texas that were previously served by an investor-owned utility. So generally speaking, that is. The Dallas-Fort Worth, they call it the Metroplex area, certain other parts of rural Texas that were served by the old TU Electric. Um, here in Houston, Houston was largely served by uh, HLMP, and so that business was that area was open to competition. So, different parts and in, in parts and places. The way the statute was written here. It applied to investor-owned utilities and then all of the public power entities, so whether they be government-owned utilities, a municipal utility, or a cooperative or whatever, they were what they were called non-opt-in entities. So they were given the opportunity to participate, but they were not forced to mm. participate as being sovereign theoretically in their own little area of the world there. So that's what we've seen here is the areas that are served by municipal utilities and or electric cooperatives. Those areas in Texas, generally speaking, are not open to competition, whereas all of the areas of Texas were previously served by an investor-owned utility within ERCOT at least, uh, those are open to competition. So the mechanics of how this worked was they split those IOUs into three different businesses so there's a marketing company that owned the customers, the retail electricity provider side. There was the uh, transmission distribution service provider, the wires companies. Those still remain heavily regulated with uh, recovery of their annual transmission cost of service. So they look like the old regulated business. And then the generation companies were spun off as separate entities as well, mm -hmm. split into three different parts and pieces. So, uh, you know, as you all might know in Texas, Around the advent of DREG, we've had several revolutions in generation infrastructure, really since like 1999. <laughs> um, you know, we built, you know, 25 to 30,000 megawatts of brand new combined cycle generation in the very, very early 2000s. 
Um, you know, we put over 30,000 megawatts of wind uh, in the ground, really in the same time frame. Uh, we, we put about 10,000 megawatts of uh, solar, grid scale solar in, in just the last couple of years here. So these things are, the, the generation resource mix has changed substantially over the years going back to when the market opened in 2002. So it's been a very vibrant kind of dynamic market in all the good ways and some of the bad ways as well. But it's resulted in, um, you know, customers here, generally speaking, paying just as much, if not less than they did when the market opened. So it's been able to really constrain price inflation for the consuming public here in these regulated or in these, you know, competitive areas, uh, as opposed to maybe what it would have been otherwise. So this is kind of what we see. And, you know, other states have, you know, kind of Texas, I think, is the furthest along. It looks a lot like the kind of uh, deregulation you might see in certain parts of Ontario. It looks a lot like the Alberta market might might look. Um, it looks, you know, uh, like the Australian markets or the UK market. Um, mm. They're just a little bit more dynamic. Um, we have some of the other markets in, in the country that it's kind of what I think of as deregulated light. Like they left the, the old utility in there <laughs> with a tariff. So you have the competitive market on one hand, and you have this tariff structure on the other hand. And and it's not really, it's kind of the worst of both worlds, to be honest with you, because what happens is, you know, the tariff is a formula and it's a lagging, usually like a lagging thing, right? So half, you know, in certain sets of uh, environments, the tariff is like way under market. And so everyone wants to move back to the tariff structure. But obviously, that's not sustainable because it's a formula. Eventually, when those costs have to get recovered, the tariff moves. And then everyone wants to go back to the competitive market. But because they lost money selling at this below market tariff, they, they recovered those shortfalls from everybody. <laughs> so it's just this, it's a little bit of um, form over substance on, on what that really is. So it's... Uh, we're, it's still evolving, and you know, I think as as we start to see some of these um, these ideas that the individual states want to have in terms of you know competitiveness of trying to attract you know businesses into their states as well as you know maybe some of their goals with respect to you know uh, renewable portfolio standards or whatever that is. I think you're going to see that the 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 pressure to bring um, some type of competitive um, environment into plays that, that that's just going to increase over time. How do you see um, the realities of of carbon and and you know the different emissions factors of the generation sources in this you know open competitive market that you talk about? Does that does that play a role at all for the consumer? Is it just you know just lowest price on a on a commodity basis? You know, how does that factor into what you see in Texas? Well, it's super interesting. <clears throat> I mean, I think that, uh, and it's interesting to me just as an observer, just to understand, you know, what does this mean over time? But, yeah, people don't always think about this when they think about Texas. Like, I think that, you know, it's, it's uh, you know, cowboy hats, uh, oil, oil pump jacks, <laughs> and uh, cattle, right? So, but, you know, again, out of our installed nameplate capacity of 90,000 megawatts of generation, and, you know, as you guys know, ERCOT is electrically isolated from the eastern and western interconnection as well. So, 
Oh, we've it's heard. its own island. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, we have 90,000 megawatts of, you know, nameplate capacity in Texas. Right now, we have over 30,000 megawatts of that is wind. And it shows up in a big way on a day-to-day basis. And uh, we have currently, you know, seven to 10,000 megawatts of nameplate uh, solar. It's moving quite rapidly. You know, the, the projects that are on the books um, that, that are supposed to be forthcoming here, um, looking at it, we're, we're supposed to be moving from a nameplate capacity of solar in 2021 of 8,275 megawatts uh, by 2023 for those projects that are in the queue. Um, signed interconnection agreements, the cumulative amount that's set to be in place is 34,000. I, I don't think that will all get built. Um, but, you know, we have this huge, huge run up in grid scale solar that's being put in place, which is kind of interesting and kind of good because it tends to be very complementary to the type of profile we get from our wind output. Um, but, you know, last year in 2021, of all the delivered, uh, you know, consumption for electricity use in the state, 24% of all of our consumption was served by wind. Huh. That's a huge, that's a big, big, yeah. big number. And I think people don't really understand that. Our gas numbers, um, you know, were just a little over 40% of that was in gas. And, you know, we're serving almost you know, less than 19% of this stuff was on, you know, Mm. traditional coal or lignite, you know, we don't really have coal quite the same way. We have all this brown dirt burning stuff uh, with this super horrible sub-bituminous coal that we pull out of the ground here in Texas. But solar was only 4% last year. Those numbers are going to increase over time. I suspect it will cut into a lot of the combined cycle stack, Um, maybe some of the coal as well. But we're we're kind of this very big experiment of of how do you deploy very large scale fractions of the generation infrastructure in, in the form of renewables. So we don't have a lot of storage capacity. Um, so you know it'll be very interesting. I would suspect that if you look at what our resource mix is, maybe maybe with the exception of uh, folks in BC with PowerX, uh, maybe some of the folks. Um, you know, in Quebec with uh, with the hydro that they're getting there, I, I can't imagine that there are a lot of other parts of the United States, at least outside of you know maybe some of the areas that Bonneville's uh, supplying the bulk of. We've got to be in some of the highest percentage of our mm-hmm. delivered energy coming from renewables, and mm-hmm. that's just slated to increase over time. So. I think that <clears throat> we've been so far out in front of some of this stuff, it never gave the carbon a chance to catch on because we were already we were kind of in front of that to begin with for better for worse you know and a lot of this had to do with you know production tax credits and some other subsidization that occurred to to put it in front of the queue um but i i think what you know maybe i'm foolish but i'm a kind of a believer in technological innovation whether it's material science or there's such an opportunity I think um, in the will to 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 bring new technologies into play that I, I tend to believe that you know one of the interesting things in in the business that I was involved with a long time ago is you now I grew up in power you know I grew up <clears throat> thinking about these things in terms of what's my fuel cost and you know I, I I spent a lot of my time trading when you know the average price of gas was you know five to seven bucks you know so you know. <clears throat> Two, two in the long term was like this is unbelievably you know crazy low, but um, y- you know 
the the thing that you always thought about there is what's my install cap my install cost for this capacity and then what's my variable cost to run it versus its operational flexibility and when we got in the telecom business that was this very interesting business to me um i didn't really thank god spend a lot of time in it but it was this such a different uh dynamic where it's this gargantuan uh you know install costs you know this very up the very heavy upfront capital investment the variable cost to move data, once you've already built that infrastructure, the variable cost is very, very small. And it's kind of the opposite of the way power always worked because, you know, I could build combined cycler peakers at a fraction of, you know, let's just say nuclear facilities cost. A lot of my variable cost, a lot of my overall cost of goods or cost of production was in fuel. Right. But this renewable penetration and, you know, maybe in conjunction with some kind of storage starts to look a lot more like telecom. You know, it starts to look, when you have no fuel cost, it's all about the install costs. And, you know, what what's happening there from, you know, advances in manufacturing technologies and material sciences. And so, you know, I, I think that the answer to me is we'll always need some level of dispatchable capacity, whether we get there from, um, you know, putting smaller numbers of dispatchable capacity in, in conjunction with some kind of storage, but it kind of seems to me in the long run that some of these other technologies, if they can get their installed cost of capital low, uh, they should be very, very competitive, um, just considering that they're not going to have to, you know, have to consider a fuel cost. So maybe just to poke at Matt's point a little bit further, Jessen, like, let's say I'm an industrial and I come to Energy Ogre in Texas and I, I mean, obviously, I understand that you guys are going to be doing sort of a rate analysis and you're going to under, you're going to provide me with essentially some answers to what utility I should choose. But is am, am I as an industrial like are you seeing us like come to you and say, evaluate it based on the carbon intensity that in terms of where I'm getting my my uh, electricity from as it relates to you know scope we'll call it two or three emissions right like how does that impact me as an industrial consumer in terms of reaching sustainability objectives because you can you hear a lot of like you know net zero by 2030 right. by 2050 is that part of your your analysis or your buildup as far as kind For of sure. understanding who they should be going with yeah there's i mean in terms of um you know, residential customers might have an aspiration to be part of a solution as opposed to being not part of right. that. So, and there's a lot of different ways and forms that that can come in. For, you know, large-scale commercial customers and industrial customers, the economics of the transaction are obviously important, but they have, uh, you know, put, you know, whether it be ESG types of goals as being front and center types of things that are not exclusively a function of costs in the forefront. And so what what I see is a lot of the larger industrial customers in Texas at least the, they tend to be pretty sophisticated buyers or they have a okay. sophisticated and so they will tend to do those things internally, but I can tell you there's no question um those there are a number of folks especially those that have uh you know uh, made either uh you know, aspirational or goal-based types of things with their investor base or as part of their compact with their customers? Is that being something that's important to them? They 100% are focused on sourcing 
renewable-based generation or having some ability to tie back their understanding from an accounting perspective what's happening. And so we, we have a scheme here in Texas with renewable energy credits. They're basically production credits as well, where you can account for renewable energy production and allocate that specifically to certain end customers. Okay. So that there is a scheme here that's been in place as part of the renewable portfolio standard that was part of the original uh, competitive market design. But we just we we built so much from a renewable perspective that we just blew those goals out. Like we never right. got to the minimum standards. We were always so far in front of it. But that is a hundred percent what we see. We see a lot of large industrial customers that are very specifically focused on wanting to point back through to you know renewable sources of energy or whatever whatever the case might be. That that's consistent with what their corporate goals are. It's it's not just talking the talk. We do see these guys walking the walk. What are you? As a um, as ERCOT, what are they doing as far as you mentioned storage a couple times? You know, here in Ontario, storage means lithium-ion batteries. It means right. a little bit of pump storage. Um, I think storage can can be broader than that, in my own personal view. But what what's happening with this increased uh, adoption of intermittent renewables as it relates to storage in the ERCOT network? I think we're seeing very similar things. Um, the vast majority of the storage that we're seeing um, that's asking for interconnection back into uh, into the system is battery types of storage. I think the bulk of that is going to be some kind of lithium-ion based technology. I think it's a pity. I mean, certainly I'm sure it has its place. Um, to me, lithium-ion seems to make sense in maybe transportation types of technologies, you know, the energy density per weight. Um, but in a stationary, I just don't, it seems to me that there may be other types of technologies that are better suited for that. Um, but we're seeing some of that. We we haven't seen this. Um, I know that there have been a number of folks that are looking at compressed air energy storage solutions mm-hmm. as well. And that's pretty, you know, obviously we, we have a lot of um, salt dome capacity here in the state. Um, there's a lot of other depleted, may not give you exactly the kind of operating characteristic you'd like to see, but there are a number of depleted formations that would probably form a good infrastructure associated with some type of a case type of technology. So I suspect we'll see some of that, maybe even flywheel stuff. I know I know folks have banded around with that a little bit, but uh, yeah, I, I think that this, what we're starting to see as we get more and more renewables in the mix, we're starting to see some very large uh, price dislocations during certain hours of the year versus others where we see negative prices, in fact, mm-hmm. uh, certain hours of the year. Um, interestingly, that's happened to coincide with production tax credit values, but I digress. <laughs> it's, it's amazing to me if someone gets paid, you know, let's just say $10 a megawatt hour in production tax credits, that negative number will go right to 10, negative 10, and then it stops. Right. <laughs> but... Uh, uh, you know, I think we, we call that the, the the invisible hand, right? That's what that is. <laughs> exactly. So, but uh, yeah, there's there's a I think there's going to be quite an economic incentive. Uh, you know, if you look at the price duration curve out of that, you know, eight thousand seven hundred and sixty hours of the year, there's a huge fat tail there where we have a lot of hours that are in the many thousands. But you know, it's all concentrated in in kind of this one quadrant over there. So I think it. It, it actually incents um, someone commercializing some of these storage technologies. To date, it's pretty small. Uh, what I was looking at um, just the other day, you know, they try to ERCOT tries to keep these things updated. 
Um, you know, we have about 833 megawatts of um, megawatt hours, I guess I should say, of, um, of battery technology that's uh, that's synchronized with the system. It looks like there's supposed to be another 596 megawatt hours. So I guess it'd be about 1500 megawatt hours. We don't have any pump storage here. Um, we don't we don't have that uh geography that makes Geology. that all, yeah yeah all of our hydro here is pretty much run to the river um right. there's very little um you know upstream uh damming that that can be done to really store any of that and it's a relatively small proportion of the overall resource mix as well so we, we we're going to have to do it the hard way here so <laughs> do you think there's more do you think there's just to finish the thought on on uh storage do you think there's more of an appetite to use you know, dispatchable fossil-based generation to fill some of that transience. I know that that, you know, here in Ontario in particular, that is not, you know, that is a swear word, you know, depending on where you are in the province. But but yeah. by and large, it's there's no appetite for using the infrastructure we've built and is in good shape. But is there more of an appetite for that in Texas? For sure. I mean, in, uh, I, I don't think there's a social um, scarlet letter associated with folks um, you know, developing some of those resources. I think that's particularly the case following, um, you know, February of 2021. <laughs> for for people here, they just weren't used to. And, you know, it's, it's an eye-opener. I think a lot of people don't really understand how hard it is to keep, uh, you know, an interconnection running. It's, it's an amazing amount of work that goes into keeping everything balanced, you know, all the time. And it, it is the fact that we don't have failures more frequently is um, I think gives people a false sense of how, how mm. difficult it actually is to accomplish the amazing feat that is accomplished every second of the day or 60 times, 60, 60, uh, one sixtieth of a second, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. But yeah, it, it's relatively straightforward here uh, for, you know, the, the nice thing about Texas is part and parcel with the competitive market. Um, there's not a, it's relatively easy to bring new generation into the marketplace. And we've seen that, I mean, that's that's how we got to a point where we're able to add 25,000 megawatts of combined cycle. Uh, we've built quite a bit of peaking as well. A lot of it's aeroderivative um, uh, in, the, in the last few years as well. I, I think uh, it's going to be the, the economics that, that work out for the folks that are trying to develop peaking. Um, <laughs> because that's a, you know, that you have... There's there's this competition that's going on right now. Is this technology going to get demand response out in front of? Is it going to be demand response or is it going to be peaking? You know mm. that that really kind of solves the issue. And you know every year closer we get. People would talk about demand management, and demand response for as long as I've been in this business, and it's been you know a pipe dream. But I am looking at a lot of emergent stuff today that looks like that's really a possibility, and so. I think that's a concern that uh, some of these guys are looking to develop merchant peaking are definitely going to have to contend with. And related, Justin, to like, you know, renewables and costs, I think Texas, like most states and frankly, most provinces and really all of North America is expecting a you know relatively large power deficit just because of the adoption of you know, electric vehicles and, you know, obviously, you know, population increases and so on and so forth over the years. Do you think that Texas, like many jurisdictions, are going to continue to turn to renewables? Uh, what effect does that have on, you know, the, um, you know, the, the, the ability of the grid to react very quickly? And, and what's your opinion on that? 
And then maybe as a, in addition to that, where do you think the pricing is going to be headed for us long-term? Sure. Well, I think the, there's aspirational goals with respect to penetration of things like electric vehicles. And then I think there's some, some, some other issues to contend with in terms of, I think there's some very real infrastructure problems associated with that, that, that are not really thought through quite as, as often. And so some of the early adopters, that's not that big of a deal. There's a, there's an easier saturation that can occur, but, you know, when we look at the average home in, in Texas, there are a number of homes here that might have 150 amp service, 200 amp service. So they're not really going to have a connectivity back through to the electricity infrastructure to run a lot of vehicle charging and run the air conditioning. It's been kind of right. optimized for the loads that they already have. Right. And it's not going to be super easy to retrofit that in, in a lot of these places. I mean, those are the, you know, it's expensive to build power plants. It's incredibly expensive to build distribution infrastructure, right? Right. right. Let alone the logistics of it all. So that's one of the things that I'm really super interested to see how that evolves. Um, you know, I, I suspect that a lot of the transmission, the you know, the, the folks are in the competitive market. If you told them that they could have another class of service that allowed them to drop a transformer for separate charging service with a separate tariff rate, and they could recover all that investment on you know dropping a new transformer, uh, you probably get a lot of takers on some of that stuff, which is probably what you need. I mean, that's the other thing too is that. You know, is is in-home charging at 220 volts? Is that really a viable? Is, is that realistic? Um, and so, you know, you may you may have to figure out how that will all work. Is that centralized charging? Is it decentralized charging? That that's a big question that I have because right. You know, if you're using your car and you're going to long distances, mm -hmm. commuting someplace to the other, if it takes you 10 hours to charge your car back up. <laughs> that's one thing if you're on one of these superchargers or you can charge 800 volts you know it might take you 30 minutes so that, it might yeah. mean that there's a different a different dynamic that's put in place there and that's easier that's going to be easier to do that if you have more centralized types of charging right um but you know it, in texas at least i think that um you know maybe separate from like rhode island um it, we have a tremendous amount of open space, right? And so, you know, if you, when you start talking about renewable penetration, um, I, I think what's likely to occur here is that it's uh, it's kind of like you just turn up the volume. You get more of every, you get more load, you get more supply, and whatever the problems we're dealing with today are kind of magnified. It's just, it's just a bigger scale. Um, because I do think we can scale our, our production pretty significantly in, in the renewable side if that's the direction that they want to go and. Who knows, by then we may have some type of really amazing emergent, you know, tidal energy technology or something new that takes advantage of, you know, waves or, you know, thermal gradients or something interesting like that. So, but but I do, I do think that we're going to see a bigger and bigger push for that. I think part of the reason is that I suspect that renewables will start to win on economics alone. I, mm -hmm. I think that they're going to start to win. Um, and so it, it won't, it won't require regulatory fiat. It won't require... Uh, government mandates. It won't require um, even the aspirational goals of some of these customers. I think it's just going to win on economics. 
Yeah, no, that's interesting. And uh, I was just I was just trying to look it up to see what his name was. I was actually at a an ISO, so that's independent independent electricity system operator. Uh, one of their conferences, and I think actually Spark Power had put this on. This is going back years ago here in Ontario before the pandemic started. And I think his name's Tony Bell, if I'm not mistaken. Anyways, he took the stage and he was presenting what he thought was the future of electric vehicles. And it wasn't as like most of us think about it today. It wasn't that we're all driving around an electric car. It was basically like the idea of either autonomous vehicles or essentially something very similar to like an Uber service where, you know, you have the app on your phone and... And and the argument that he was making was because I think it's something like 90, it's in the 90 percentile of cars are sitting in a parking lot, right. you know, a huge amount of the time. So from a manufacturing perspective, from an energy perspective, you know, from out, outfitting all of these different homes and, and, you know, centers, you know, with quick chargers or superchargers, whatever, you know, it was, it's, it's just, it's quite onerous, right. In terms of, of, you know, doing it that way versus just, you know, kind of finding a service that would do this for you. So I'm interested to see what happens over the next, you know, I 10 years percent. as we kind of think about what goes what goes on in this world, right? Well, I think in the denser urban areas, I 1000% agree. And that's actually the some of the same thought process. I might have heard it from him hearing it from somebody else or whatever, but I totally agree with that. I mean, your vehicle for most people is probably one of the worst performing investments that they make. Uh, I, I, I didn't have fun with, with my car, but you know, it's not, it's not a great investment and it has a capacity utilization rate of like 4%, you know, in a mm -hmm. best case scenario. So a hundred percent, you know, you think about getting rid of congestion and, and mobility, if you had some type of autonomous and, you know, it was interplay, uh, interchangeable, that would make the most amount of sense. You know, I was talking with some, some friends of mine that are one of the oil majors here and. You're talking about um, you know, what happens with all these franchise service stations that they have. And, you know, we were talking about that. So, you know, maybe one day those become centralized charging stations, especially when you have autonomous vehicles. If you even if you own your own autonomous vehicle. But, you know, if it takes off at three o'clock in the morning by itself to the charging station to do a 30 minute recharge when, you know, demand is at its lowest or whatever. And then it just shows up in the morning back in your driveway. Who cares? <laughs> Isn't that like the ideal way to do it? So. Yeah. Maybe maybe that's the future. I, I think I think there's a lot of um, there are a lot of tech, a lot of infrastructure and technology hurdles that we're going to need to overcome for the in-home charging to be the standard uh, that I think that most people deal with. I, I I honestly do believe that some kind of a centralizing chart centralized charging structure, even avoiding distribution losses. You know, there's it's much less efficient to move that. You know power across that uh, that lower voltage system, you know, having bigger stations that are kind of maybe closer to maybe some of the distribution substations. I think I think that there'll be a commercial solution that that makes its way to the forefront. If these things are really going to become the standard, I do think there'll be quite a bit of innovation. Same kinds of things we expect to see on generation. You're going to see, you know, consumer based innovation that occurs to make these things a reality because there, there are a number of, of, of real impediments there. Yeah. So we've talked a lot about the Texas uh, grid and, and the Texas ISO uh, ERCOT. Um, we'd be remiss uh, for our listeners if we didn't talk about last winter. Um, you know, what's your, you know, a year in the in the rearview mirror, Jess, and, you know, what happened 
um, you know, what could have been done. I mean, it's easy to be, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. It's easy to be a critic, you know, after the fact. But you know, talk to us a bit about, you know, what happened and and what or what's been done since then, or um, that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, it's you would think this, but you know, um, you know, Texas has always, you know, our system was always a little bit um, more at risk in a winter scenario than a summertime scenario. Um, our system was really built to serve summer peak load. You know, we, we, we were summer peaking here in ERCOT in Texas. Um, and so most of our, most of our designs have been around, um, you know, dealing with the anomalous temperature excursions in the summertime. In the past in Texas, uh, the places that we've been near or on the edge have always been the wintertime types of scenarios. And, um, you know, the last time previous to this that we had had rolling blackouts was, uh, I think, in 2011, in uh, February of 2011. We, we happened to have the Super Bowl uh, up in Dallas or in Arlington that year. Uh, it was very memorable for everybody here that that occurred. But part of the reason that that's the case is, um, surprisingly, uh, if you look at our, our natural gas infrastructure in Texas, we have a robust natural gas transportation infrastructure and gathering infrastructure in the southern portion of the state in the northern portion of the state it's not quite as robust and um and so what happens for us in the winter time is when we have uh, home heating demand that kind of competes for power generation demand in limited infrastructure in the northern part of the state it, it creates some potentiality for there being um Gas, deliverable, gas deliverability problems that in turn kind of result in power supply, power availability problems. Mm -hmm. And so this has been something that's been out there to, to, to be contended with over the years. Now, we've had a tremendous amount of shale gas production in the northern part of the state, and there's been a lot of other infrastructure improvements that have been made there in, in, in some of the pipeline infrastructure. But it's still on a relative basis was is not as robust as as what we deal with, what we, what we have in other parts of the state. So that's the backdrop against which this all can begin to occur. And for us, it's very, um, you know, wouldn't have been that way if I were in Calgary, uh, but the temperatures that we saw in February, 2021, like it just doesn't get to single digits in Houston very often. Right. Uh, Fahrenheit. Um, it doesn't get in, you know, it's very rare that we have negative Fahrenheit temperatures in, in Dallas and Fort Worth. So, we really are looking at, uh, you know, the types of temperatures that we hadn't seen here in the state in over a hundred years in wow. certain places. So it was it was unbelievably cold, and you know it goes unreported because you know it was like Texas was you know I get it it was it was obvious <laughs> it makes good TV, but you know, had the same problems in Oklahoma. You know, no one's like, oh my God, what happened in Oklahoma in 2021? <laughs> well, that the exact same issues that occurred there, and a lot of the a lot of the, that uh, middle tier of the, of the country from Nebraska through, it was just so unbelievably cold. It was such an anomalous kind of environment that was there. But you know, that's the backdrop and it was you know unbelievably, but it still shouldn't have been, it should not have been as bad as it ended up being, right? So the, there have to be other types of things that, that were occurring there. So, you know, in, in Alberta, there's a tremendous amount of wind production that occurs in Pincher Creek, right? So right. in Pincher Creek, um, you know, I've been there in February and I think, I think it's actually their peak outputs in Feb <laughs> just happens to mm -hmm. coincide with, uh, with the, uh, the, 
the, the peak uh, the peak demand on the system. So we know for a fact that um, you know uh, wind capacity can run in, in 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 winter conditions and and some pretty extreme temperature conditions as well outside of you know de-icing that needs to be done. So I think there was a lack of investment that was made there because mm-hmm. it was an operating case that was just outside the scope of what you know predictable operations would look like. For a lot of our other combined cycle plants, a lot of the ones are built in North Texas and some of the others, you know, people aren't really that, we don't deal with stuff where you had to worry about your boiler feed pumps, you know, freezing solid and, you know, minus four degrees. If this were, again, if this were in Calgary, if this were in Ontario, that standard course. So there, there wasn't, there was a failure of imagination in terms of some of the resiliency and the hardening against some of these extreme temperatures. Um, but I can tell you there are a number of power plants that were built and when their entire life generating electricity and were retired in the state of Texas, it never saw temperatures anything like <laughs> this, right? So, right. <laughs> so it's, it's a hard thing to say it's a competitive market. These guys are at risk for you know recovering their costs and then mandating a bunch of other things that, that have to be done there. But I think this is kind of the nature of the beast. Our entire modern civilization requires reliable electricity supplies, so some of it kind of comes with the territory. So – that's a big part of what we dealt with. And the last thing is we always, even though we we produce the bulk of our power here in Texas on, on uh, natural gas as a marginal fuel, there's not a great deal of, of um, operational integration at the regulatory and maybe even some of the operational levels. You know, the gas day is different than our power day. Um, the Railroad Commission of Texas regulates the natural gas uh, infrastructure in Texas, whereas the Public Utilities Commission of Texas regulates the electricity and telecommunications. So there's some gaps that have been allowed to be there for a long period of time. And what we what we got to was, you know, we had situations where some of the gas uh, gathering as well as some of the pipelines, they're using uh, electric uh, reciprocating compression to uh-huh. move gas. And so when they get interrupted, it becomes this like feed loop. If we haven't coordinated ahead of time, these are interruptibles, these are not interruptibles. You can actually make things way worse than than it should have otherwise been. And and we did see some of that go on and occur. Mm-hmm. So 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 what's happened? You know, what's the what's what how do you how do you reduce the probability of this occurring in, in the future? You know, how can we make sure this never happens again? You, you can't. How do you how do you reduce the probability of this ever occurring again? Well, the you know state did a, a number of things, and um, you know the the legislature happened to be one of the years where you know our legislature shows up every other year. Uh, we're not they're not in session every year, so it happened to, you know for better or for worse to be a year that they're in session. So <clears throat> uh, a lot of, uh, of updates and modernization was passed through from a legislative perspective as well as the governor's office. So a lot of revamping our Public Utilities Commission, um, bigger groups, much more stakeholder-based process. Um, more importantly, there's uh, now uh, some inter interoperability uh, and intercommunications that occur between um, the Railroad Commission and the PUCT. So there's a much tighter degree of coordination um, to be done there and, and, and going through and, and pre-planning, pre-looking at these scenarios and having a game plan and a game, uh, uh, you know, a, a playbook to work from there. Uh, every generator in the state of Texas was required to look at their, uh, their resiliency to these types of issues, understand their failure modes, failure mechanisms, 
what they would do to try to prevent this from occurring and an implementation timeline associated with those uh, improvements or capital investments. So the vast majority of generators here um, you know, undertook those steps. I will tell you, if you looked at even what was reported in the public domain, some of the some of the folks that were, um, you know, uh, the renewable generators lost hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars, if not billions of dollars. And, uh, you know, I don't think they would have needed a regulatory uh, prod to make the investment uh, in making sure that didn't happen to them again. And so I think that's kind of what we saw across the board. If you're in the business of producing electricity, um, you want to make sure that you can produce electricity. So okay. you're not going to you're not going to wait for someone else to, to prod you to go do this stuff. These guys either had direct losses or just gargantuan opportunity losses and in their inability to produce. And so um, there, there's been quite a bit of, of focus and, um, and, and, and capital put into trying to minimize the probability of that occurring again. But it was in many respects, I think it's, it's right to say it was a confluence of having these unbelievably historically anomalous types of uh, temperatures and operating conditions, but there was absolutely a failure of imagination in a lot of different parts, uh, uh, you know, of the infrastructure. Cool. Yeah, well, that's a thank. Thank you for that kind of comprehensive look and, and packaging it all up for us. That's that's very very helpful for those of us who were not uh, in the throes of it when it happened. So thank you. You're for like, that. oh, you guys, it's only minus 20. Right, right. <laughs> silly, silly Texans. <laughs> uh, we're still wearing shorts in that weather. Uh, <laughs> exactly. So we've kind of, as we as we wind down here, Justin, we've picked your brain a lot about the Texas system. Let's kind of circle it back to Energy Ogre. Uh, if people are, you know, in Texas or kind of trying to figure out, you know, what you're about, um, you know, what's the, What's the process look like to engage with you? What's the best way to find you? Kind of, uh, you know, give you a, a couple uh, moments here for a, a spiel on Energy Ogre and how you best engage with your clients. Sure. You know, again, <clears throat> our plan here and our goalie is to really provide a solution that didn't exist before, and that's uh, to, to find someone that can step in as a fiduciary. You know, someone that really has a customer's best interest in, in, in mind and at heart. And, and help them unlock maybe some of the value. It's, you know, we see this over and over again where folks say, you know, I know I should be, I probably pay more than I should for my car insurance. It's just kind of a pain in the butt to, to shop and all of that. And the same exact thing is true in power here in these competitive areas. It's just, it's, it's time consuming. People view it as being, um, you know, difficult and, you know, oftentimes they don't really know, you know, if you thought you could, you know, reduce your, you know, power bill by 30% just by doing a better job of, of picking. Well, that, that'll get people's attention because we spend a lot on on, uh, on electricity here in Texas. They don't, so they don't know the magnitude of what, what it's costing them by not taking an action. So our whole business has been structured around trying to make that process as simple as possible for, for someone to engage us, to administer it, for, to sign up with us, to let us handle that for them. In every place that we can not have them have to worry about being involved or they can anything that we can handle for them without them having to be involved with that we will do that to the maximum extent that we possibly can so our process is very very simple you know our website is energyogre.com it takes someone you know probably less than five minutes to you know sign up with us we do need to get them uh, to send us a copy of their bill there's some important information that's on that bill let's let me know you know 
in the early days, we'd say, hey, are you in Are you in a contract already? Oh, no, no, I'm not in a contract. And then you switch them and then <laughs> hold, hold they're in a contract. So we try to avoid uh, stuff. And, you know, it's, they, they may not understand what their situation is, but it allows us to pull down some of the smart meter uh, data so we understand what their demand looks like. Some of that data is on there as well. So upload the bill and, and then we'll take a look at what the situation is for them and either immediately take care of it by enrolling them in a better plan or say, hey, there may be these, you, know, you might have to break your contract, but here's the economics of breaking your contract or we would suggest you wait and you will put your uh, your your account in the in the ice box until you know it gets closer uh, near the end and uh, we'll wake it back up and, and try to handle things for you. But mm. but the idea here is just to simplify this process. You know, we can't obviously make the market can't make market prices happen, but what we can do is we can try to make sure that folks are always in that lowest decile quartile from the cost perspective um, as they move forward in time and, and to stay there, right? So it's not just putting someone there. It's it's a lot of work sometimes to keep folks in that in those good outcomes. And that's what we do as well because we continue to look at what's happening with their account on the going forward right. phase. Awesome. Well, Justin, thank you for uh, your time today. This has been a great discussion about, you know, all things from – you know, energy, uh, uh, energy. You know, different regulated, unregulated markets. Good lesson there. You know, certainly a glimpse more into Texas, and then talking about your business and the role that you play on behalf of uh, consumers. So, thank you again for your time. What's the best way for you mentioned energyogre.com? Uh, that what's the best way beyond that uh, for people to get a hold of you if they if they would like? Are you on LinkedIn or how best to find you? You know, I'm a, I'm kind of a social media hermit, so I never got into the whole <laughs> thing. Okay. And, uh, uh, so I've, I've tried to stay away from all forms of social media to the greatest extent that I possibly can. Wow. Okay. Um, but yeah, our, the, the company, Energy Agri, we have a LinkedIn account as well. Easy, easy to find me on, on, uh, on our company account. Uh, same is true on our Facebook account and our Instagram account. So I don't have it in, you know, to junk up my world, but, uh, but we do. And, and for many respects, uh, you know, I, I'm kind of the face of the franchise in that regard. Unfortunately for everybody here, I'm the face of the franchise. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, this is uh, audio only, but we have been uh, pleased to interact with your face today. And, and more importantly, please interact with you and, and have your insights on the show. So thank you for joining us today. We really yep, appreciate thank it. Thank you very much, Justin. Of fun. Of fun. Cool. Good. And Lisa, thank you as always. Uh, and Mark, the man behind the glass, making us uh, sound good. Thank you for pulling this all together. Uh, and um, on behalf of uh, the team here at Energy Radio, thank you to our listeners. As always, uh, appreciate you tuning in. Uh, and remember, on this energy journey, we're all in this together. Thank you. <laughs>